Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson, your host today, and I'm talking with Josh Heath of High Level Games, noted supplement writer and podcasting enthusiast. And we're here to talk to you about cosmicism, cosmic malevolence, HP Lovecraft and Lovecraftian horror, and a super duper swell supplement that Josh has written that is now available on the Storyteller Vault. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing really well. It is a Monday and I'm not at work, so it has to be a good day. Yeah, that was my thought too. Normally I record these episodes that are book reviews at like 7.30 a.m. on a Saturday. So I'm like, 10? Woo! And then we got to delay it, so that's that's even better. So the first thing we have on the docket is the idea of cosmicism. Now, Mage the Ascension generally starts with the premise that people matter. And that in the grand scheme of things, the actions and activities done by mortals, whether they be mundane or awakened or enlightened or sleepers, are important and affect the outcome of things. Cosmicism as a philosophy sweeps that aside and goes, meh, universe doesn't care about you. Have fun, kids. I guess the best known author in this vein was the somewhat complicated character of H.P. Lovecraft. How did you stumble upon Lovecraftian writing? Interestingly enough, I was sort of familiar with Lovecraft, had read one or two of his short stories as a teenager, but never delved very far down that uh, space until I joined the army. I was in basic training with this gentleman who became pretty much like my best friend throughout training. And when we got to our advanced training assignment together, he and I at some point went to a bookstore. Now, his background did not make me think that he was going to be into horror at all. And to find out that he was a huge Lovecraft nerd kind of blew my mind. So he and I ended up reading through together as kind of like a a book club, though it wasn't, we didn't call it that because that would have been nerdy to do so. But we ended up reading the entire collection of Lovecraft short stories together while we were in uh, our advanced training. So that maybe answers your question, but I was already familiar with like the concepts of Lovecraft from Vampire, The Masquerade, and from Mage a little bit, but mostly from Werewolf. I played a lot of Werewolf in its connections to the mythos through the worm and those sorts of things. So I knew more than I'd actually like studied. And over the last 10 to 20 years, I've really, I've read all of Lovecraft's letters. I've read every book that JT Joshi has wrote about Lovecraft. I can't tell you that I remember every single thing from every single one of those. And his, and Lovecraft's letters get creepy quick, not creepy in a good way, which I think is something maybe we could talk about that Lovecraft is, complicated, but I think the complicatedness allows us to learn things from ourselves and from him. I first ran into H.P. Lovecraft just because it was a name that was bandied about a lot. I was a D&D kid until I realized that they were better games, and I wish I could retroactively free up all the neurons I dedicated to memorizing spells and monster manual entries and retroactively apply that to the history of the technocratic union or the traditions. In my current life as a podcast host for Mage, I feel like that would be much more useful. But my first call out to it was probably my uncle. And he said he was drawn to Lovecraft because his stories never care about money or wealth and love is never an element. And He super appreciated that as a concept. I picked up the complete Lovecraft for 99 cents 
on my first generation Kindle. And I was mystified because the complete Lovecraft was 99 cents and the selected Lovecraft was $2.99. I'm like, that's stupid. Why would I pay $2? Well, I will gladly pay $2 to get the portion of my life back dedicated to the crappy early HP Lovecraft stories. <laughs> they left some holes. But yeah, ST Joshi, I, I listened to a number of interviews with him as he was going through the collected works of HP Lovecraft. His interviews are out there. And as he talks about the transition of HP Lovecraft from someone who wrote supernatural horror to science fiction horror, as came out in the end, what do you think the, the, the best known stories are? Something that the audience may go, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. The obvious one is the Call of Cthulhu, but that is that actually even the name of it? Is the question? Yep. You you have that moment where you're like, I know this thing, and then yeah. is that really the thing? <laughs> the Dunwich Horror is also a really popular one that people might be aware of. I'm not. I'm not. I'm really the wrong person to ask that question because what would pe- like the average person be aware of? I guess it's the key plot lines that people would be familiar with. So, like, yeah. just a quick rundown. At the Mountains of Madness is a case where there's an Antarctic expedition that finds this ancient civilization filled with bald penguins and formless horrors. The case of Charles Dexter Ward is a necromantic tale that I think informed the Reanimator series of movies starring Jeffrey Combs. Which also are touched on by the... I'm That's what I'm thinking of. Herbert West Reanimator. Sorry. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, the color out in space, this meteor crashes in and starts infecting this area of Massachusetts, which I think is currently being made into a movie starring Nick Cage, Dagon, that was another case of someone glimpsing some terrible horror. Uh, The Dunwich Horror, another invisible abomination terrorizes an area. Probably the most infamous is going to be what? The, uh, The horror at Red Hook? Oh, probably. That would be because of Innsmouth and everything with that. I bet that would be one. Shadow over Innsmouth, yeah. Mm-hmm. You find something weird in a family tree. Pickman's model, where an artist is creating these horrific images, and it turns out that they're not imaginary but real. Whisper in Darkness. There's there's a lot. You've probably stumbled upon one of his plot lines if you don't realize it directly. Films heavily inspired by Lovecraftian style is probably uh, The Void, Event Horizon, Pandorum, Recently Life, where there's something out there and it doesn't like us or it doesn't care about us. Now, you brought up earlier that Lovecraft is a complicated and controversial and problematic figure. How? Well, go straight honest with it. Lovecraft was a horrible racist and not just a horrible racist that we can look back from the 2019s or the 2010s, 2020s and go, oh, wow, he was racist for his time. No, he was a renowned racist for his time. Yeah, even his social group was tended to point it out. Um, And it only became worse over time, which is strange because he was a rabid anti-Semite and settled down with a nice Jewish girl. And she would politely remind him like, hey, maybe maybe you don't bring that up as you are married to a Jewish person. And um, so the Nobel Prize for Compassion should go to his uh, his late spouse. Let me do proper service and list her name. I believe she, I believe they got divorced and or separated at one point in his life because of some of his behavior. Yeah, Sonia Green. And a lot of his themes kind of reflect what are fundamental concerns of his in his family history. It looks like both of his parents eventually ended their lives dealing with pretty severe mental illness, either crippling anxiety or some sort of dementia. So that can kind of 
influence one's worldview. And thematically at the time, he is also living at a time of social upheaval, and not just in the sense of the social order, but a person's place in the universe. So he is dealing with the wake of Einsteinian relativity, of space-time becoming more important than space or time. He is super suspicious of technology, and I get the sense that his racist views kind of stem from this fear of the unknown, or vice versa, or the two the two work very well together. Whenever he depicts a alien landscape with strange geometry and architecture, you kind of read the sentence and you're like, he's just describing New York City. This guy really doesn't like leaving suburban New England. Or he's mm-hmm. like, there were writhing forms of millions of people moving about in a in a manifold kaleidoscope of forms. You're like, you're just talking about an ethnically diverse area, possibly with a subway system. This is not horror. This is wonderful. And the, the pageantry of humanity. But, hmm. Mm-hmm. The the horrible thing with all of that is it's clear reading through a lot of his work that he uh, is a a recluse. There is a much better term, a much more modern term than I'm trying to think of, agoraphobia. It's it's fairly clear that Lovecraft has some form of agoraphobia or had some form of agoraphobia, agoraphobia, but that doesn't excuse the rest of it where it's like, yes, okay, I understand that you have difficulty being in space with other humans because you are afraid of them, but your fear of humanity doesn't excuse your your conclusions that you jump to. At the same time, it's good, I think, to lean into the magic mirror and say what Lovecraft is telling us about horror and is about ourselves and if we can look at it and stare into the abyss maybe we won't go insane maybe instead we will become clearer minded and able to address those things oh yeah i like to think that whenever i hear someone quote nietzsche he is the philosophical equivalent of a kid that is lost in a department store who's lost track of their parent and is like, what do we do now? Ah, like, no, no, no. The notion that, that God is dead or however you want to phrase this kind of philosophical nihilism is not an excuse to value nothing. It's an indication that no, 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 you have more work to do. And likewise with Lovecraft to be, how do we look at this? How do we take the useful elements and how do we move forward with it? And now we have this notion of the neo Lovecraft movement. I, I guess my two favorite examples of this are Lovecraft country by Matt Ruff and Harlem Unbound by Chris Spivey where you have an interface of some sort of eldritch horror or something from beyond reality, but also racism. And at the end of the day, the racism is usually much more problematic than the eldritch horror. So I'm glad that there have been moves to take it back. There are also other people in the tradition. Uh, So after Lovecraft stopped writing and was near the end of his life, he kind of had two literary heirs, one of which was August Derleth, who very much extended the Cthulhu mythos. When you hear about the difference between the great old ones and the outer gods and so on, that is largely his invention. Uh, A lot of the monsters in Lovecraft are one-time entities or used once or twice. And whenever you see it being expanded out fully, it is probably by some subsequent writer. August Erleth is notable for always looking like he's having a great time in every photo I've ever seen of him and him having very strong feelings about prairie living. So I always like when someone like that who writes about monsters all day seems to be a perfectly wonderful family person. This is the part where I find out he was actually abusive or something like that, but at least he seems happy in photos. Which is fair. 
I don't know anything horrible about him off the top of my head. That doesn't say that we won't eventually discover such a thing. I feel like we need to like date stamp it. Like as of this date, this person was only this horrible before we discovered this terrible thing about their past. And you wrote a supplement inspired by Lovecraftian theme, Heirs to the Mountains of Madness, which I was glad to pay my dollar fifty for. Get in there, independent content creators from Storyteller Vault. What was your inspiration or your process for this? And what is it? So let's go back to the first time, or maybe even the second time, I was on Mage the Podcast. And I was okay. talking to Joe, and uh, Joe asked me, hey, why don't you write a Mage one-pager? You know, you've written all these things to the vault, why don't you do one for Mage? And I said, oh, no, it's impossible. It's impossible to write one page of plot to get you started with a chronicle and have it be Mage-worthy. And then I was a couple of weeks later, I was talking to Shannon Hennessy and Shannon suggested to me that I write something about Lovecraft. And I went, oh, I immediately have an idea for a one page chronicle jumpstart, which is what this is. Heirs to the Mountain of Madness is a one page chronicle jumpstart where you have a single page of plot. And then you have, in this case, 13 pages of NBCs. But that single page of plot is the important part that says this is what the story setting is, and this is where you can go with it, and these are characters that can play in that world if you want them to do so. You say that the one-pager is the important part, but for me, I will pay $2 all day long for just like a fistful of mage characters and NPCs Mm -hmm. for days. So if you ever want to start a Patreon that is just like ready-made character of the day, sign me up. Fair enough. If we could do Patreon for the Storyteller's Vault, I would have already done that. It is not something that creators are allowed to do. That is a restriction from the Storyteller Vault side. Correct. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. That said, I will probably end up doing more character sheet folios once the Beckett's folios are done. And perhaps I will go on the mage direction rather than the werewolf direction. Or maybe a mix of both. I don't know which yet. What, you don't want to write a supplement of Dude Bro the Dude Broening of how an entire lacrosse team discovers that, that they're kinfolk and in a giant bus accident with another lacrosse team, they all uh, undergo their first changing together and then just do keg stands and destroy the worm together? I just assume that's what Werewolf is as a game. No, but now that you suggest that, I've played that game. Okay. <laughs> We will eventually have you on to talk specifically about Werewolf, and I will discover its manifold beauty. But for now, it is still the butt of my jokes. Fair enough. Uh, So what was your process for coming up with this? And what is the Mountains of Madness that these characters are heirs to? To set expectations with this this book, it is not a follow-on story to the Mountains of Madness. It is not a Lovecraft story using mage it is an inspired by lovecraftian elements mage chronicle jumpstart i cut those lines very specifically because if you go into this thinking this is going to be a lovecraft story you will be disappointed because it it has elements of things from lovecraft but it really it isn't a call of cthulhu game it isn't another rpg that is strictly Cthulhu-esque it is, or Mythos-esque. It is instead inspired by those things and draws linkages to the mythos to tell a specific story or to help a storyteller tell a specific story. Yeah, reading through it, it very much felt like you took the writing elements, but not necessarily the theme or the mood, because the theme of Lovecraft and the theme of Mage often run very counter to one another. 
How did you pick which elements to take to kind of leave the cosmicism or human insignificance behind? So what I tried to do, because I think your question speaks to two things. Mage is about humanity is important to the world. Without humanity, the world as we know it could not exist. Lovecraft does the and the mythos do the exact opposite from a cosmicism standpoint that says humans are ultimately useless and unimportant completely. But as a mage, you have the power to change the universe. So you've got to be able to have that element there, even while playing into that space. Even though in Mage, it is a supernatural world with elements like demons and vampires and werewolves, and maybe even more remote things like umbral spirits at the end of the day they're all kind of powered by the quintessence flow created by at least earth and probably the dreams and actions of humanity which kind of goes uh, against the the whole lovecraft idea of our cosmic insignificance Mm -hmm. is there a way that a storyteller who maybe wanted to incorporate some lovecraft themes could do it while largely preserving themes of mage I think so. And I think you may have to lean into the Nafandi to do so, but you don't have to. What are some non-Nafandi options? Be- before we go through the outline, let's let's talk about directions that you could take. So we have mentioned cosmicism before. That mm-hmm. is the idea that humans and human activity is ultimately insignificant in the grand realm of things. There are two ways to look at that. One, the universe is so profused with life that no single civilization or entity really matters that much. It's kind of like looking at an ecosystem in your gut. While there are probably keystone species, there are hundreds of species of gut bacteria that are probably somewhat unique to you. And for many of them, if one of them were to disappear, you wouldn't be the wiser. But there are a few that just kind of eke out a living inside of your small intestine. And if that went poof, you probably wouldn't notice. On, on a cosmic scale, life could be important, but no particular species or entity or planet is really that important if there's quadrillions of stars. If you have the ability to expand all of life and creation into your realm of concern, you're a better person than I, but my empathy gets very tired very quickly, which is why I, as a person, try and focus on compassion. But that's neither here nor there. Another way of looking at it would be There isn't as much life. And in the analogy of your gut bacteria, humanity is the gut bacteria in the cosmic colon of some greater entity. That the sum power of humanity and the sum power that humanity will ever wield is insignificant compared to some other entity. Usually H.P. Lovecraft depicted this by having some giant entity, as in physically gigantic, or physically incredibly potent, where the the sum total of the actions of a town was trivial compared to a single finger flick for this entity. And that's where your Cthulhu, your Dagon, your Haster, your Yogg-Sothoth, and and such things come into existence. And Mage has a few of those giant entities. I think it picks up a lot more in Werewolf. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any examples of giant, terrible entities that don't really care about humanity or just use it for its own end in that system? In Werewolf in particular, yeah, the triadic system that is the underlying metaphysical structure for Werewolf is that there are three such entities that created everything that we understand within the universe, the wild, the weaver, and the worm. And the weaver and the worm are given some semblance of intelligence and capability at structuring the things they do with purpose 
So the wild creates everything in the universe. The weaver structures it and makes it into a pattern and the worm breaks it all down and destroys it and sucks it into oblivion. At some point in the werewolf cosmological history, the weaver entrapped the worm and the worm lost control of its mental state and now is trying to corrupt the world but is actually incapable of destroying it in the way or destroying elements of it the way it was intended to do so. Of course, what created those three things and gave it intent is another story, but the worm itself is set up as a Cthulhu-like entity, a mythos-like entity that's goal is to corrupt and ultimately destroy everything within the world. And that does exist within certain elements of the mage paradigm as well. And in this case, these are not necessarily abstract entities. Like someone can talk about being the servant of the wild. That doesn't mean necessarily that there is an entity called the wild that you could stumble across in the Umbra. But in Werewolf, these are very real entities. Like the entire tribe of Croatan went poof in an attempt to prevent one of these entities from manifesting in North America. No? Yeah, absolutely. What's weird, though, is yes, in some ways you can go to these entities because there are umbral realms that are supposedly manifestations of the pureness of that entity, of that um, member of the triad. Malpheus is the semi-literal body of the worm. The flux realm is in some ways literally the wild. There are cyber realms and other weaver realms that are, if you read into it enough, the body slash spiritual essence of the weaver. So these things are not just there, they are present if you get to the right layer of reality. Huh. Well, that's a that's a special kind of terrifying. Mm. It, now, now, in Mage, these things tend to be more... Uh, I guess you could say intellectualized, but in other systems, we also have reference to to giant things beyond reality that are terribly problematic. You have the Earthbound and Demon the Fallen. You have the entities that purportedly some of the Bali and Vampire are trying to keep subdued. What does it look like in Mage? Like you had made mention to, to the Nefandi, and we're not going to go into too much detail because they're a big, diverse, varied organization, which is super weird to say about the embodiment of dissent. But w- what does it look like when, when a Mage decides to serve one of these outsider things? So the Nefandi that give themselves over to the outer dark, in whatever form that is, have chosen to believe paradigmatically that the only way for the universe to go is in the direction of destruction. And that can be done for various different reasons. For me, the Nefandi are always understandable in a sense that they believe that ultimate nihilism can bring forth a better universe eventually. And that's generally, if I use the Nefandic plot in my games, that is their ultimate goal. That by destroying, slash corrupting, slash obliviating the universe, something better will rise up in its stead, which really draws on Gnostic tradition that the universe that we are in is the uh, creation of an evil demiurge. And if we destroy that prison, we will ultimately be uh, able to get into some form of heaven and therefore everybody ascends to bring it around to a mage standpoint. That is one way to do the Nefandi. It is not the only one by half, but it is one way to kind of zoom in and touch on what they do 
And some of those elements are what I get into in this book in the sense that the Nefandi have this ability to make mages like them, quote unquote. But what happens if more traditional mages that believe in ascension get a hold of the process of inverting an avatar? They actually get control of so-called call. What could they do with that? Could they save avatars? And if they save those avatars, what does that mean? What will happen? That's the ultimate crux of Heirs to the Mountains of Madness. So one of the ideas is in Mage that there is this soul stuff or something similar that is colloquially referred to as as an avatar or avatars. There is seemingly this one-way process whereby instead of pursuing ascension, a person can choose to pursue descent or descension, and they go through a call, which is this nephondic portal, as you could say. And once you have gone through, your avatar is inverted. And in this case, it is inverted from pursuing ascension to pursuing descension. This is interesting because we don't know of a way of reversing it. It is at a storyteller's discretion if redemption is something that can happen. It is also indicated in some texts that maybe an archmage in spirit or prime might be able to reverse things, or maybe a Celestine or something equally powerful would be able to flip that switch back. But now we have this kind of cosmic one-way valve in the cycle of creation that mages keep being reincarnated over time or their avatars keep being passed on to other entities. But it is possible to have this buildup over time of these malevolent avatars or alternatively avatars pursuing descent instead. So you are positing, so what if the good guys get this? Can we run this backwards? Is this a case of the allies getting a copy of a German code book? Can we crack the code and and, and bring these messages back? Do you answer that question? No, I have an answer. And it would be probably not the answer that I would expect other people, or maybe it's exactly the answer I would expect people to go with. But no, the the one pager does not give you an answer. It says that answer is up to you, storyteller, to decide what makes the most sense for the story you wish to tell with your players. So if I'm a storyteller and I run with this, to me, the question of reversibility comes down to a question of how do you view the world of darkness and Mm -hmm. how do you view the nature of avatars? Again, I like a world of darkness where hope and faith and justice are all achievable. They're just hard. So to me as a storyteller, if I were to introduce this, the only case where I would want to be able to reverse that would be either a case where absolutely epic role-playing occurred or one where the amount of avatar stuff were finite. So Mm -hmm. if the idea is we have this giant uber avatar and little bits of it are chipped off and psychopomps jam it into a mage and those people go throughout their lives and then it returns to that form and then comes back out again, I would want an ability to reverse it if there were a finite amount of avatar. Mm -hmm. If new avatars pop into existence regularly, I could see it being a question of the garden is growing, there are weeds in the garden. Our goal is not to turn weeds into flowers, but to remove them and make sure there aren't too many. So in that case, if avatars are constantly being generated or the total amount of avatar mass, as it were, is growing, then I wouldn't see a need to have this reverse process because it then becomes a race of, can you destroy these these fallen avatars quickly enough? And can we keep it at a population level where we're okay with the amount of Nefandi running around, for lack of a better term. But here's where it gets personal. Because what happens if your lover 
or your child or your best friend is forced through a call, potentially that's possible with the way Mage is written, and their avatar becomes inverted. You might agree with the idea that, oh, it doesn't matter if their avatar is shattered and they never retrieve it, but then they lose an important essence of who makes them who they are, if you can even save them, or are you comfortable killing them and saying, oh, well, at least we don't have another Nefandi running around. This is why, as a fan of the Euthanatos, I really want a bumper sticker that just says, better luck next time, Senex. Or something like that. (laughs) We do get in canon a couple of places, though, where the idea of being forced through a call just results in the person dying horribly. That entering the call needs to be a willing process. So I guess you could either say, no, this is something you can shove someone into and this terrible process occurs. Or you can create a scenario where, at the time, having one's avatar inverted seemed like the reasonable thing to do. I guess one of the big cases of that is, if you think you're going to live forever, then the idea of an inverted avatar may prove to be less problematic. Be like, ah, they're never going to get my soul. Who cares? But that brings up a messy conversation about the difference between the soul, the avatar, and so on. So if I'm a storyteller that wants to run with your thread, do you have a recommendation on how I bring it up? Or is that being reserved for a future supplement? That is going to be up to the storyteller to how it happens. I've left the idea of it. I've created enough of that in this supplement that you can look at it and go, okay, I understand what this process looks like from a storytelling perspective. You know, there's a physical product here that the mages can build that is a call, quote unquote. That is enough, if you ask me, to show, because there should be no mechanics to do this, if you ask me, but it's enough to show from a visual perspective how one would go about making this sort of transition back happen. Okay, so we've talked about cosmicism, and there are a few other related philosophies that kind of pop up as being important. One is the idea of antinatalism. And this is something that to me fits very well into the world of darkness. Writer-wise, a name that comes to mind is John Ligotti, which is the idea that on the whole, being born is bad. It is possible for some people for this to be net positive, But on the whole, if you do integration over the sum total of existence, existence kind of sucks. And it would be better to not be born in the first place. Now, these aren't necessarily things you have to bake into your world. But if you're like me, I very much enjoy having my characters encounter people that have strange to them paradigms to be like, oh, there are people who think this way. And it is a perfectly internally consistent system to run by. So antinatalism posits that not existing is better than existing given the choice. Although once you're here, may as well make the best of it. As far as ways where this would come up, one of the concerns with developing a generalized artificial superintelligence would be we create this AI, it runs the numbers, it comes out to be antinatalistic, or somehow in its programming, it decides or it is determined that it is antinatalistic. So the best thing for the universe in the eyes of that superintelligence is One, no more babies. Two, make the lives of people out there as short as humanly possible. That way you minimize the total amount of suffering because on net, there's just not enough joy going around to justify existence. And this is the problem in AI known as benign antinatalism. The computer is not malevolently trying to destroy all of humanity. It's just run the numbers and this is the conclusion that it came up with. Are there any other big giant philosophical themes that you think that a a storyteller could inject that's kind of in this vein that might give their characters pause? 
my brain immediately goes to nihilism, but I feel like the nihilism conversation happened on another podcast by Twin Cities by Nights recently. Um, so for those of you that listen to that, I don't want to like repeat that. But um, for those of you that don't. But you should go and okay. listen to the Brian Diaries where they talk about nihilism. But I think nihilism plays a place here and maybe let's at least uh, address the elephant of nihilism in the room. Oh, sure. In that the idea that, one, I am, I find antinatalism to be horrifying, and yet I have a very good friend that is absolutely a believer in that as a thing, and I'm just confused by it, but I also have children. So maybe that's another story. The idea of, of nihilism sort of making sense in that, oh, if all of the world is going to hell anyway, let's just hurry it all along, makes some sort of sense if you don't think that humanity can make things better or that individuals can't make things better in the world. And I think that is that speaks to something within Lovecraft and within these types of things that exist in Mage, potentially, that, sure, you with your avatar can make a change now, but ultimately humanity wants to destroy itself and will fight back against you through paradox to ensure that you don't change the world because they want it to be destroyed. The sleepers ultimately want to cause the universe to enter heat death and no longer exist. Oh, that's fascinating. So the idea that paradox is kind of an expression of our implicit death wish. Mm -hmm. Ooh. When it comes to questions of, of nihilism, again, I just think of a, a kid lost in a, in a shopping mall screaming mm -hmm. that we, uh, we have no meaning just because they've lost sight of their parent. But mm -hmm. for, for the listeners at home, uh, nihilism can be broken down into 10,000 subshades. But to me, there is kind of a useful tetrachotomy or, or four-part thing. And there's an amazing Wikipedia chart on this. You have an idea of nihilism, which says there is no such thing as meaning or value. This is a fundamental postulate. It does not necessarily state that pleasure or happiness is impossible, but that meaning as an organized activity that one can seek is just not there. I generally consider myself to be an absurdist. Albert Camus is probably best known in this school. The, uh, the Stranger and The Good Death and Empire and Kingdom and a number of books that he did, I, I was quite fond of. And the answer to the question of is there meaning or value is maybe. The question of is there inherent meaning to the universe to an absurdist is generally no. And I think my favorite part is the idea that even though there is not intrinsic meaning to the universe and whenever we try and make meaning, we will more than likely fail, we should do it anyway. Because the pursuit of the process can give this thing that really seems to look like meaning. It can give us joy. Albert Camus' fundamental piece in this is the myth of Sisyphus, where he says, Sisyphus knows that he's going to be doing this for eternity. If he does, why is he bothering pushing the boulder up the hill? Either he is compelled to by some outside force, in which case, well, it's no longer Sisyphus, essentially, because someone's using mine three or mine four to say, nope, you're going to roll this boulder up the hill, or he enjoys it. This is the activity that he's doing now. And I very much like the idea that even if the universe is meaningless, the activities that we do now can create this meaning-like thing or possibly true meaning, we just don't know. And I guess above that is the idea of either atheistic or monotheistic existentialism. I guess there could be a polytheistic existentialism. I just haven't run into it yet. To which the answer to the question of is there meaning or value 
yes. And the question of is there inherent meaning to the universe generally to an atheistic existentialist is no, we have to make it and we have to pursue it pursue it to make meaning, uh, or to a monotheistic existentialist, yes, there is inherent meaning to the universe, but there is only one avenue to it. Now, you may be asking yourself, what's the difference between monotheistic existentialism and monotheism? Uh, th that's a slightly more invo involved conversation, but, but to me, that is my primer on nihilism. Mm -hmm. And you can bake that into your chronicle. It can be something as obvious as a character producing literal meaning stones, the idea that somewhere out in the umbra there are objects that are meaning manifest. And what would that mean? Like, what would happen if, if someone were to stumble upon four pounds of meaning? Like, what would that even mean? And I feel like that's a super <laughs> good way to bring, bring about certain absurd tendencies. I like, I like the Neoplatonism there, and it's one of the backbones of the world of darkness, is that everything on some level exists as a ideal of itself. Mm -hmm. which when you talk about absurdism it is has its platonic ideal somewhere that's fascinating and both ridiculous like words concepts emotions feelings have a physical or semi-spiritual slash physical manifestation in the world of darkness you get into potentially hilarious spaces which goes against everything that i think you would find in lovecraft and that's fine but it does speak to something similar in that there are greater things outside of our control, outside of our understanding, and we'll never be able to see their fourth dimensionality because we aren't outside of their existence enough to see them. It kind of reminds me of a Saturday Morning Breakfast comics comic, which shows two figures arguing with each other. And one is a, a blue square and the other one is a, is a pink circle or something. And one is labeled great man theory of history. And the other one is labeled aggregation of humanity. And they're arguing with each other over what is more important in the grand, grand scheme of history. And then it zooms out in the final comic and it shows this yellow triangle or something that's 200 times larger than either of these little arguing entities labeled random shit. And it goes, what are those two arguing about? That kind of reminds me of that. Add that to the show notes, Terry. Do you ever include in your plot an idea of cosmic malevolence? So we've talked about cosmicism, the universe doesn't care, or cosmic horror that humanity's realization of its position in the universe can be somewhat terrifying. But I guess Mage doesn't really tend to focus on the universe is out to get us in the same way that maybe Werewolf does. Do you have a recommendation on how to bring that into a Mage Chronicle, or do you think that fits us all? First edition Mage does this really effectively, that there are creatures that are actively coming to get humanity from outside space and time. And the Ziggler are these alien yes. creatures <laughs> that are so mythos like it's not funny like you you just see a, a single image of them and you're like oh okay or pseudo image because you never get real clear images of them in any of the art that oh that's something that's really creepy that's coming to get us why we don't know are they avatar eaters do they have avatars of their own there's lots of these little things that are kind of just dropped and never really picked up and run with in regards to them. But the Void Engineers are fighting against them. The Void Engineers are going out into the Umbra it, from their perspective. They're going out into space and they're fighting against these creatures that are trying to destroy humanity. So that's how I would bring them in. That's how I have brought them in in the past is I, I once played a Void Engineer that had been out to the Outer Dark and had returned and so he had a little bit of PTSD and he had a little bit of nihilistic sort of despair. But at the same time, he was truly like a believer in 
we need to save humanity one from itself because they're going to give themselves to these creatures willingly if we're not careful and two these creatures just want to destroy everything and everything is all we have so we need to protect it i think those things can be brought into mage in every tradition or or convention really easily just by saying these creatures from the umbra or wherever are coming and attacking people and then you get to do that from whatever paradigmatic angle you're looking to do it from yeah this has gone over in the book ascension which uh, the two beliefs i have about the mage system that probably start the most nerd fights are one i love arch spheres Two, I thought Ascension as a book was amazing. Yeah, I just sat down and I read that bad boy cover to cover. Like the moment I found out it existed, I'm like, yes, tell me how everything is destroyed. I cried a little at uh, Scenario 6, Hell on Earth. I guess that would be Scenario 5 or something like that. But the one where the Nefandi win. And I'm like, I don't want the Nefandi to win. Before that, there's one where the end times for World of Darkness comes at the hand of of aliens and it is a fight or a combination of the efforts of the zero and the problem i always run into when i'm trying to find references for them is i don't know how to spell it so mm-hmm. i invariably pull out my copy of made second edition go to the back look through the z's type that into whitewolf.wikia.com and then return to whatever i was trying to do and they also introduced the kaluan also referred to as the grays they have an antistic antagonistic rivalry with the Z-I-G-G apostrophe R-A-U-G-G-L-U-R-R. Ziggler. I'm going to uh, assume that's that's how it's pronounced in canon. Uh, Absolutely. But the <laughs> the Kalawan are abducting mages because they the awakened spark within avatars is kind of a fuel for them. And they're using that to create their own little realm. And there's a UFO cult in there. What is there not to love? Mm-hmm. And the advantage of having these giant outside bad guys is one this gives you an opportunity to create strange bedfellows i recently played the game far cry 5 which takes place in an area of montana that is slowly being taken over by an end times cult and interestingly one of their antagonists are preppers who feel no 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 no. everything's going to come to an end but not the way you think it is so this would give you a strange opportunity to have your character's Team up with a, a, a Nefondus or team up with Technocrats or team up with whomever and to be like, no, 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 this is the bigger baddie. He's the guy in the second movie that you know is bad because the enemy from the first movie is now on your side again. <laughs> uh, so in, insert the X-Men and Magneto teaming up any number of times. I find it interesting. One of the concepts that exists in Werewolf that I think could be moved to Mage is the idea of, tell me if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Hirano, the... Mm-hmm. The, the sense of futility. Yeah. What, what is that? And do you think there should be a mage analog? Oh, uh, that's a great question. So it's uh, effectively greater ennui than anything a human, a human is capable of uh, experiencing. It's depression plus. It's not just a physical manifestation of depression, a spiritual manifestation of it as well for the werewolves. With Geru in really bad Hirano is incapable of doing the things that make them Garu. They are incapable of regaining Gnosis. They are incapable of shifting forms any longer when things get really, really bad. They no longer feel any sort of sense of success over uh, any, any combat that they're involved in. It's just all worthless. I actually think that would be a great thing to bring into Mage, 
this sense of, of, oh, we've struggled so hard and everything we're doing is completely useless. And then I would have those people become Nefondi because that seems like the obvious direction they would go. Yeah, or it's the role of your characters or your Chantry to kind of reinvigorate those people. There, there's any number of uh, existing cases in media where you have someone who's been doing the moral equivalent of trench warfare, fighting against some dark omnipresent foe that at best can be held at bay, but never being defeated. And to have your characters kind of peek into that corner of the Ascension War strikes me as something that can be insightful and hopefully reinvigorating, mm-hmm. a useful reminder of this is why we're doing everything. So we have just done a pretty high-level overview of a number of related philosophies. Listeners, if you enjoyed this, we will do more in the future of this kind. If you didn't, also tell us, but still tell all your friends to download this episode. Do you have any resources that you'd like to direct interested people towards? My big recommendation is actually going to be TV Tropes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their summary of H.P. Lovecraft And his foibles are pretty fascinating. Any writing that you stumble upon by S.T. Josie, he's probably one of his best literary critics. And do a little bit of poking around there and find what you like and get rid of what you don't. Or use it as an opportunity to invert it. One way of inverting the whole idea of cosmicism is giving your characters the opportunity to punch Cthulhu in the face. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no reason why you can't do that. So do you have anything you'd like to direct the listeners towards? Wow, you just stole everything from me, Terry. So okay. I don't know. <laughs> I will de- I will delete mine what I said and then you can say it and it'll be in your voice. Not a, not a problem at all. That was all fantastic. I would keep it. I would specifically say look for JT Joshi's uh, biographies of Lovecraft because yes, the benefit of looking at his work critically and looking at kind of like crit- Uh, criticism and attempting to understand some of the themes he's using literary criticism of it there's another word it doesn't matter is great but looking at lovecraft's life from a biographical angle tells you just as much about how to use these elements in your stories as reading those actual works do if not more And if you're a participant in the Mage of the Ascension Facebook group, Josh and I put out a call for anyone who had input on this topic. And uh, of the people to respond, Satoros Filbricato was one of them. And he dropped three very large excerpts from the hopefully one day to be released Book of the Fallen, which I will include in show notes. So one of my goals for 2019 is to figure out how to ask more open-ended questions where the person in charge of shepherding an entire line of books will reply with unreleased Uh, book excerpts that would be good to do there was a very lively forum conversation i'd like to thank dustin d richard b victor k megan c phil b chris h and craig j for all chiming in with something that i eventually either already had in my notes and i wanted to do a call out to or for bringing up a salient point that eventually got integrated specifically if you're looking for more things that are weird and deal with the idea that human Consciousness is Fragile, The the King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers is a set of short stories that Bricado mentioned as being an inspiration. The the Fisherman by uh, John Ligotti, specifically his nonfiction book, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, is specifically listed as an inspiration for the Book of the Fallen. So if you want to get sad before you get sad, put that on your reading list. If people are looking for inspirational media, if they haven't watched True Detective season one, and I'm told season three, they should do so. Um, because there are few shows that touch on the mythos without touching on the mytho- mythos as effectively as that show does. 
I was super excited for the fact that to steal a line from Penny Arcade that we were possibly going to get CSI Innsmouth, mm-hmm. uh, and that ultimately uh, didn't pan out. But sadly uh, not. But it was still a good show. So, what other projects do you have in the pipeline that you're uh, willing to share with our audience? Well, if folks are interested in non White Wolf projects, I want to briefly talk about those. We're going to be releasing a high level games is the we I'm referring to is going to be releasing a Kickstarter for our Snowpunk setting, which is called Snowhaven, and that will be coming out. Um, it might be out by the time this episode goes, but if you have a chance to see it, you've seen it, check that out. It's going to be fun. It does have a few of these cosmicism slash monsters out in the wastelands elements to it, so that could be interesting for folks that are coming at things from that angle. You can also just come by High Level Games and see the other things that we are producing. Josh, thank you so much for joining us again today and letting us uh, dip into your wealth of knowledge. I'm happy to always be here for the wonderful conversations that we have. Thank you for listening to Mage the Podcast, now 100% trans fat free. If you enjoyed what you heard or alternatively hate what you heard or you don't really feel strongly and you want us to know about it, email us at magethepodcast at gmail.com. Give us a follow at magethepodcast on Twitter. If you'd like to listen to any of our back episodes, all of them are available at magethepodcast.com and also on Spotify. If you haven't already done so, we super appreciate reviews on the aggregator of your choice, whether that be iTunes or, well, not iTunes. Everything's great. Your Mage the Podcast non-sequitur text reference of the day is, Beeswax candles are by far the best for most magical purposes. If you know what book that's from, we are both proud and concerned for you. Thank you for listening.